live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about sailing on light for fun and profit, and of course, taking listener questions about all things, all things, because that's exactly what this show is about. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, so you can follow along online with the space gets or leave a voicemail go to spaceradioshow.com for the links and in today's blue shift i'll be talking about how to talk to human beings but first the news Hello, space cadets. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at The Ohio State University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent of the stars. We've got an exciting show for you today where we talk about all things space, astronomy, rocketry, astrophysics, all the best stuff in the universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern here in Spaceman Studios in New York City. So you can leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to London, UK, Washington, D.C., Salt Lake City, Utah, Buckhead, Georgia, Reno, Nevada, Carroll Stream, Illinois, Krakow, of Poland and Warsaw, Poland. You can submit questions there and I will do my best to answer them. Seriously, folks, I've only prepped 10 minutes of show material tops, so get those calls in. Before I start taking questions, I wanted to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And the big thing making the rounds this week is the Planetary Society's Light Sail 2 project has launched, gone into orbit, deployed a light sail, and is kind of, sort of, maybe riding on beams of sunlight. Planetary Society, this is 100% crowdsourced, nonprofit organization. So something like 50,000 people donated the money to raise $7 million to launch this satellite. The satellite itself is something called a CubeSat, which is mm, about the size of a loaf of bread, like a decent loaf of bread, not one of those mini loaves, like a, a nice, healthy loaf of bread. And the majority of the spacecraft was a folded up, packed up, Uh, mylar i believe material that was very very reflective they got into orbit this is the second time they've tried this by the way they've unfurled their light sail which this big reflective thing which is like 36 square meters and this is where the first one a few years ago failed it didn't wasn't able to unspool correctly and so it just burned up in the atmosphere and so they got it unfurled And as it orbits the Earth, they can change the orientation of this spacecraft so that when it swings around the Earth and it's completing its orbit and it's got a nice full face of sunlight, it turns the sail to face the sun, gets a blast of sunlight, so pushes it a little bit higher in its orbit and then goes sideways again so it can go around the Earth and then gets a blast of sun. So every loop around the Earth gets a nice little boost of sunlight. Sunlight, light, photons, doesn't have any mass, but light does have momentum and light can bounce off of things. And when light bounces off of things, it can push things around. So yes, light can push things but light is kind of light 
So when, when this spacecraft is getting the full blast of sunlight, it gets the force equivalent of the weight of a paperclip. And I don't know if any of you have ever held any paper clips, but they're not exactly the heaviest things in the world. You could breathe on a piece of paper and impart more force. So seriously, if we send an astronaut up there and like had the astronaut breathe on the light cell, that's more force than it's getting from the sun. However, all measurements seem to indicate it has boosted its orbit. After a few orbits, it's gone up a mile, which, hey, not so bad. Eventually, it's going to burn up in the Earth's atmosphere because as it gets further away from the Earth on one side of its orbit, it's going to get closer to the Earth on the other side of its orbit. And so it's going to start skimming the atmosphere. And man, the atmosphere is a real drag and it's going to burn up in about a year. But so far, so good. And uh, I'm not too excited about light sails. There, I just said it. I just said it out loud. Yes, it's working. Yes, in principle, you can use light sails to push yourself around the inner solar system without using any fuel. On the other hand, man, it's it's like, you know, they've been working for like a few weeks and then got a mile. They only have like 11 billion more to go to get anywhere interesting. This one's not going to do it. The Planetary Society has no plans to do a third one or follow-up missions, but they're going to release all their technology. Hopefully someone else is going to do it. Could we really seriously get to another planet? Obviously not people because that's going to take forever, but even stuff. Like, will it take like a thousand years to get to another planet? How big of a light sail do you need for that? And how heavy is that light sail going to be? And if it gets heavy, it gets harder to push. It's just, man, for some reason, I'm not just, I'm just not very excited by light sail. Space cadets, feel free to prove me wrong or to, to agree with me. It's your choice. It's your choice. That's the laser and grace when it comes to space. But it's time to have a conversation. We've got a voicemail ready to go, but I wanted to share with you, the lovely audience, some of the comments I'm getting from the space cadets about light sails. Uh, one person, uh, Princess TSO1, agreed light sails are just too slow. And <laughs> Richard, Scott Bragnan, Scott Bragnan over on Twitch said, a light sail is like breathing on your car to make it go faster. I, I really like that analogy. And of course, George Lancaster going all the way, putting lasers on sharks in space so they can shoot the lasers at the light sails to make them go faster. I think that's exactly the end game here is sharks in space with lasers, shooting the lasers at light sails, controlling an interplanetary transportation network. Man, if, if I've never met uh, a vision of the future that I liked more. That is brilliant. But we got a question here. We got a voicemail ready to go. Greg, play the tape. Hello, Paul. This is Richard Drum, a.k.a. Richard Drum, the Astronomy Bum, producer and editor of the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, a daily podcast free on iTunes. Could you please tell the undergrads out there what an REU is and how to get one? Thank you, Paul. Yours and cheese. <laughs> Thank you so much, Richard Drum, the astronomy bum. Space Radio, by the way, plays on 365 days of astronomy. Not every single day. 
you know, they play other shows every once in a while, but it does air on there. And thank you, Richard, for getting those episodes up there. Uh, yours and Cheese, hey, a fellow cheese not is always welcome. Now, in REU, so I get lots of questions, especially from high school students. Just, just what is it like careers in physics and astronomy and astrophysics? And one of the first introductions you have as a young scientist to be in the world of research is in REU. REU, that is a research experience for undergraduates. This is a program administered and funded by the National Science Foundation, and other countries have their own versions of this. And it's specifically targeted towards undergraduates. So these are sophomores, these are juniors, these are people who have had a couple years of of training, of going after their bachelor's in physics or astronomy, think they might be interested in a career in research, maybe interested in going to grad school, but, but want to do some, uh, some serious research and give it a shot. And so if a faculty member somewhere is or a group is interested in hosting an undergraduate, they apply to the NSF, say we want to hire one, this is what we want them to do, et cetera, et cetera. The NSF, if they like the project, funds it. Then the team or the faculty member or the researcher advertises the open position. Hundreds of people compete for it and then someone gets it. And they're, and they're all over the place and you apply to all over and it's a lot of fun. It's a madhouse trying to do all the organization, but it happens. These are summer programs. They're usually 10 weeks then, and the NSF provides a stipend and housing. And it's, you know, the goal isn't to write a paper. The goal is to learn how to be a researcher. So from the point of view of the group or the senior researcher, you don't expect a lot of productivity out of these kids. And I can say that because I was once one of those kids. I had a REU at the University of Rochester where we were using Spitzer Space Telescope data to investigate young, just barely forming protoplanetary systems. And it was really, really fun. And I've, I've worked with REU students before. They're always bright. They're always precocious. This is a very, very good introduction into research. You're not expected to do a lot, maybe some number crunching, maybe fetching coffee, but hey, at least you're getting paid. You're getting to see how group dynamics work, how people talk to each other, how sharing emails and software systems and teleconferences. It's a good place to start. Some people, some undergraduates think they want to do research, do an REU and say, you know what? Pass. And that's a very legitimate thing to say. Others do an REU and say, can I sign up for another one? Usually they go from an REU into uh, some sort of undergraduate research position back at their home university for the next couple of years. Uh, it's a good thing to have on a resume. It's a good thing to go for. It's not mandatory to get into grad school. It's just really, really useful. So if you're into research, if you're a high school student and you're going to go get an undergraduate degree in physics or astronomy and you're on a research path, then an REU is most likely in your future. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We're going to take a quick break here. This show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash Sutter to learn how you, I'm looking at you, and I'm talking to you, only you can support this show. See you after the break. 
Support for 90.5 WCBE and Space Radio comes from Thompson Hine, a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work, predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got more questions ready to go, but remember, you can join the conversation by leaving an online voicemail or by following the Space Cadets on the live streams. Check out spaceradioshow.com for the links. Speaking of those wonderful wonderful space cadets who I hold near and dear to my heart. They have tons of amazing questions ready to roll. So let's just knock it out of the park. Let's let's go into orbit. Let's do it. George Lancaster is very curious about light sails over on YouTube, and he's asking about how it works to raise its orbit. I mentioned uh, when I was talking about the light sail that it needs to rotate to face the sun and then be angle on, so it's only catching it the sunlight on one part of its orbit in order to raise it. How is that rotation controlled? I'm guessing that inside this little loaf of bread called a satellite, that it has various uh, rotating objects like servos, and it can either spin up or spin them down. And then through conservation of angular momentum, if the little wheelie spinny thing spins one way, then the spacecraft goes the opposite way. And so they just, and it has a little battery inside of it for power. George Lancaster also, again, very curious on YouTube with those questions about the lightsaber, the, the lightsaber, lightsaber, mm, different thing, different technology. I will host a crowdfunding thing to launch a lightsaber into orbit. Uh, does the solar wind give it a push uh, if it's outside the magnetosphere? So light isn't the only thing coming out of the sun. The sun also emits streams of charged particles called the solar wind. Our magnetic field is like a literal force field against those charged particles. So we don't feel most of them here on the surface or even in the upper atmosphere. The light sail is designed just to reflect light. It's not the solar wind itself isn't going to have that big of an effect because even though the uh, the solar wind particles are much more massive, they're much thinner, these things are designed just to work with light. Maniac over on YouTube, switching gears here, is it possible that the stars that we've discovered around planets have more planets that we haven't observed because their orbit period is much longer than the observation window? So... When we stare at a star and we're looking for planets around that star, we're looking for exoplanets. If that planet, say, takes a year to orbit the star, then if we're looking at the wobble of the star, we need at least one year to see that orbit, right? We need to see the star go back and forth a couple of times before we're like, yep, there's a planet around there. But if we're using something like the transiting method, where we're waiting for that, that planet to just cross the face of that star, then it can have any orbit it wants. We just have to get lucky. So we just have to stare at a whole bunch of stars, and then every once in a while, one of their brightnesses will dim because the planet's crossing in front of it. We're like, oh, there it is. There's, there's a planet right there, right there, right there. Got it, got it, got it. Watch, see it, see it, see it, see it. Go. Okay, we got it. And then it's gone. And we may never see it again. 
Usually when we see planets with the transiting method, they're just candidate planets. And then they use follow-up observations like using the wobble of the star to confirm it. And this can take a year or multiple years. So the planets that require or that have long orbits that take decades to orbit their stars, either we never see it because we don't watch long enough, or we get lucky with the transit method and we're not exactly sure if there's still a planet around there. But there's some ways around that because astronomers are a pretty clever bunch. So we can detect planets with relatively long orbital periods, but there is a limit to it and it depends on the particular system. And for sure, there are a lot of planets out there, even in the systems that we've already observed, where we can't yet detect the planet. So there it is. Washington Rake over on YouTube is asking, he's been wondering how long does it take for a planetary ring to form? So if you look at the rings of Saturn, this glorious giant ring structure, but then you pay more close attention and you realize that all the giant planets in the solar system have rings, just they aren't as spectacular as Saturn's. Natural question, how long does it take to form? As far as we can tell, and mm, there's going to be some caveats to this answer, as far as we can tell, planetary rings of some sort pop up pretty much right away. As soon as the planet forms, as soon as the moons of that planet form, the planetary rings will form. And... The one exception maybe is Saturn. It could be that Saturn's rings, the spectacular big giant rings that it has, may be relatively recent. But again, we're not too sure about that. People go back and forth about that a lot. It seems that rings of some sort appear almost instantly. Probably as soon as you have a giant planet, you have some sort of ring system. And then the big fancy rings like Saturn, those seem to be more rare and they can potentially be more recent. Moving on, Raj Luther on YouTube, back over to light sails. Love all these light sail questions. What about light sails propelled with lasers? Ah, so we're using sunlight and sunlight's great because it's like right there. But what if we have a giant laser and we shoot the giant laser at the light sail and we use that to push things around? This is the uh, made the big concept behind the interstellar spacecraft ideas called the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative, which I did a whole Ask a Spaceman episode all about that, where... Yeah, I came down kind of hard on it because I'm not the biggest fan of that either. I'm just a curmudgeon. I'm just an old curmudgeon in a, in a, in a middle-aged body. But you know what? I'm already there mind-wise, straight up 100% curmudgeon. <laughs> With lasers, the downside of lasers is, one, we don't have giant lasers. They're kind of hard to build and they're kind of dangerous. And two... The whole big idea behind light sail is that the sun is already there generating photons for free. And so we could just harness this. It's a source of energy. We don't even have to work for it. And if you start involving giant lasers, then you got to power the giant lasers and you have the infrastructure and then you got to beam that laser and all that. And it's like, man, for all that work, couldn't you just like make a rocket and like get it 
over and done with. I don't know, like I'm, I'm leaning more towards the rocket side than the laser side. Thank you, Al, these amazing space guests for all these amazing questions. We're almost out of time today on Space Radio, but before we go, it's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift, and my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. I just recently recorded a recorded wrote an article for Forbes, and it'll appear on my own website on my blog, my ab initio blog, that's pmsarge.com slash notes, uh, talking about tips for human interaction, because I'm a scientist. As a scientist, I meet a lot of people who are fans of science and who are enthusiastic and love talking about science and asking lots of questions are all jazzed up about the whole thing. More power to them. I also meet a lot of people who aren't fans of science and it just either just doesn't excite them or they feel threatened by it or they disagree with various parts of science. Maybe you do too as you listen. And I've developed over the course of the past few years a set of rules for interacting with people who don't agree with science. And I'll share one particular anecdote. I was at an event at the Carnegie Science Center for the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing, giving a talk. I was talking to someone who came up to sign my book, and we're talking about how the sun over the course of millions of years is slowly heating up and how this isn't responsible for climate change. And he said, well, I think climate change isn't largely driven by human activity. I said, well, you know, the evidence... You know, this is a valid question. How much of climate change is natural and how much is due to human influence? And the evidence points to it's human activity. It's increased carbon levels in the atmosphere. And his response was to shrug and say, eh, I don't think we've monitored the climate long enough. And I explained, oh, well, we can can use a bunch of proxies. We've actually been able to make temperature maps going back tens of thousands of years and then even millions of years with other methods. And he just shrugged and said, eh. I don't find it convincing. I was stunned because here was someone who was at a science event. They were wearing a NASA shirt and just speaking calmly about the evidence and and where it leads just was met with shrugs, which was a very, very strange reaction. So what I do, I let it go. I let it go. I just moved on. I just signed his book, shook his hand, thanked him for coming and said, I hope you enjoy the presentation. I just let it go. There was nowhere to go. There was, there was nothing to do. There was nothing I was going to say that was not going to get a shrug. So I said what I, was, what I said, which was statements based on the evidence, which is all I'm going to say as, as a scientist. What else is there to do? What else? If you have tips, let me know. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio from the very new Spaceman Studios in New York City. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets, and all the fine crew at WCB Radio at 90.5 FM Columbus for making this show possible. You can catch the live stream every Thursday Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for more info, links to the live stream locations, a magical button that lets you leave a voicemail online, and the episode archive. You can also follow me directly on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. My name is at Paul Matt Sutter. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing and transmission.